through that together as a family. All right, so Luke chapter 24 is where we're going to be headed. Uh, last week, we were in Luke 19 as we looked at Palm Sunday. And take a little departure away from the Gospel of Matthew, which we've been working through verse by verse uh, through these first six months of our uh, church being planted. Uh, we've taken a step away from that. We looked at uh, Palm Sunday last week, and in particular, the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ coming into the city of Jerusalem. And if you get an opportunity to go back and listen to that message, what you'll find is we, we walk through the, the prophecy that was actually fulfilled by Jesus as he entered into the city of Jerusalem. It's prophecy recorded by Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 26. Unbelievable prediction right down to the very day that Jesus was going to walk into the city of Jerusalem triumphantly in 32 AD. And so, amazing prophecy that he fulfilled. He rode into town on a donkey, which was prophesied in Zechariah chapter 9. And he did so as the perfect Lamb of God during the Passover season, where they would actually bring lambs into the household. And there, as they brought the lamb in, the lamb was to be examined or checked upon. For four days, they were to look upon their lamb to make sure that it was worthy to be sacrificed. It had to be perfect in every possible way. And so here's Jesus as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, entering into the city of Jerusalem four days before Passover. And what do they do? They examine him. They question him in every imaginable way. Courtroom scenes. And they're at the temple asking him questions. The reason they were doing this is to exactly fulfill what he was to be, the, the Passover lamb, the lamb of God. Now, what we find is uh, Friday when we gather together and we celebrate a good Friday, what we looked at was the crucifixion then of Jesus. These are the events that have taken place lead up, leading us up to today. And we see him willingly laying his life down, not forced to by any man like they might have thought they did, but instead willingly laying himself down to pay a debt that we could not pay. In fact, as Paul writes to the church there in Colossae, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, this is what Paul says about Jesus and his sacrifice there on the cross. He says, And he has wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So here's Jesus literally taking the debt that we could not pay. The handwriting requirements were not legal rules and regulations. These were, were debts that had been racked up, the same way we would rack up credit card debt if we were unable to pay them. And this is what we've done throughout our lives. We've racked up a debt that we cannot pay on our own, but what Paul tells the church here in Colossae is that he's nailed those debts on the cross, which brings even more impact to the final words of Jesus in John chapter 19, verse 30, when he says the phrase, to die. It's translated in your Bible probably, it is finished. But I shared with you on Friday, that's actually an accounting term. An accounting term that meant paid in full. They would stamp it at the top of the invoices when they had been finally paid. When the debt had been wiped out, they would stamp to die at the top. And that's the phrase Jesus used as he uttered his final breath. And so we see he's paid this debt in full, but it did not stop there. Because he's willingly laid his life down in John chapter 10, verse 18. This is what the Lord said about laying his life down. 
He says in verse 18, I'll actually start in verse 17, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up again. This command I have received from my Father. If this whole story stopped on Friday with his death, his crucifixion, and his burial, we don't get to celebrate today. The issue with it stopping on Friday is that we are still buried with him. If there is no resurrection, then there is no hope for eternity. Our sins would be buried along with us being buried. That's the beauty of today. That's why today is such a huge day in our Christian faith because the resurrection is proof that the payment was accepted. It's the receipt. So if his death was the payment, the resurrection is the receipt saying that that it has been accepted fully and completely. He was worthy to be able to take this on and raise himself up again, which is why as the Apostle Paul addressed the church there in Corinth, in Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in perhaps the, the greatest uh, you know, New Testament writings about the resurrection itself, what Paul says in verse 12, he says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. Verse 17, he says, And if Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile, because you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep... In Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. (laughs) That without the resurrection, our faith, this whole journey we're on, we are of all men most pitiable. We are buried just as he was buried. Dead, goners, that's it. Thankfully, there's verse 20. (laughs) But now Christ is is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man, capital M, also came resurrection from the dead. That if he had the power to resurrect himself, he also has the power to resurrect us as well. And then Paul says this interesting phrase. He says Jesus was the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, to many of us, that doesn't mean a whole lot. He was the first fruits. That sounds awesome. He was the first from the dead. But, but for Jewish believers and in their tradition and in, in everything that's been ingrained in their society, the first fruits speaks precisely of one of the feasts of God. Now, I'm going to take a little sidebar for just a second, so you have to give me some grace. It's Easter Sunday, so grace is going to abound. You're going to give me a moment. I like to think of, uh, as we go through Scripture verse by verse, it's sort of like a spiritual buffet. So if any of you all have been to the Golden Corral, uh, maybe, maybe you don't prefer it. Uh, now that we have six kids, I love the Golden Corral. I didn't used to like buffets, but when you've got a whole bunch of children's, you've got to have a lot of options. 
because they got chicken nuggets and then somebody wants meatloaf and you know somebody wants liver and onions they got everything at the golden corral it might not all be for you but but the good news is there's something everybody can eat that's precisely what we try to do here on Sundays not everything is going to be for you but maybe just maybe you'll find something you like and guess what there's always ice cream so here we're going to take a few minutes take a little side tour because Paul has said Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection. What does that mean? Well, way back in Leviticus chapter 23, I know you guys love to spend time in Leviticus, but in Leviticus 23, God lays out seven different feasts, and he says something interesting. He, he tells Moses, tell the people that these are not their feasts, but these are my feasts, capital M. He also goes on to call them holy convocations. Now, I'm guessing in your everyday vernacular, the word convocation isn't something you're going to use with your get-together this afternoon. But the word convocation means rehearsals. These are my feasts, holy rehearsals. Now, if any of you have been to a wedding before, you've probably been invited to the wedding rehearsal. And what you know is that no one in their right mind would sit through the wedding rehearsal unless, well, first of all, there's food. So good news, God made sure there was food at every one of the wedding feasts. But then also, uh, there was an actual event. No one would go through the rehearsal over and over and over again in the, unless there was an actual reason and an event behind the rehearsal. I promise I'm going somewhere with this. And so what God does is he lays out these seven feasts. Now I've just told you in the introduction that Jesus walked into the city of Jerusalem on which feast? Passover, right? He, he's actually crucified on Passover. The Jews tried their very best. They wanted him dead, but the one thing they didn't want is they don't want him dead on Passover. It's a huge festival. There's all these people. Man, make it a day later, a day earlier, anything but on Passover, but the word of God is going to stand. And so Jesus was crucified as the Lamb of God on Passover. He was then buried for three days, during the three-day feast that comes next, called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Unleavened Bread is uh, precisely what Jesus called himself. He said, I am the bread of life, who is also free of sin. Leaven in the Bible is always a picture of sin. So he who knew no sin was actually buried during this three-day feast, only to then be resurrected after the third day during, you guessed it, the Feast of First Fruits. Now you're starting to see a pattern. And then fast forward to the final of the Spring Feast, which is called Pentecost. And what do we see when you fast forward 40 days later during the Feast of Pentecost? Is there in Acts chapter 2, the early churches gathered there together in the upper room, and what happens? But God gives them the power of the Holy Spirit comes down upon the church, and it takes off like a house of fire. 3,000 people are saved that day. So what I'm saying with this is during the first coming of Jesus Christ, all four of these feasts were completely fulfilled. They went from being the rehearsal to the real deal the day Jesus walked into Jerusalem triumphantly on Palm Sunday. Now, if these spring feasts were fulfilled with the first coming of Christ, you can tell where I'm going with this. We are now in the summer harvest. Jesus looked upon the crowds and he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. He's pointing them to this time period that we call the church age, which means there are three feasts still left. The fall feasts, the feast of trumpets, 
the Feast of Atonement known as Yom Kippur, and then the Feast of Tabernacles. So what I'm saying is, in his second coming, he is going to complete exactly what he started, and all three of these fall feasts are going to be the fulfillment of the second coming of Jesus. So lest you think I'm a little bit crazy, you can jot that down in those Bible study notes, research that for yourself, and what you find is uh, the first fall feast, the Feast of Trumpets, as it's known, uh, likens us back to the rapture. And this feast is interesting to me because it had to take place on a new moon, but they were never quite sure what day the new moon was going to be. Because maybe it'd be cloudy here, cloudy over there. Like, boy, we don't want to miss it, so we'll just celebrate for two or three days. And it became known as the feast when the day or the hour is not known. You can start to see what Jesus is doing and unveiling with his second coming. Yom Kippur, that day of atonement, the one day that the high priest could actually go in to the Holy of Holies to offer a sacrifice for the whole world. He could offer the sacrifice on that one day. And what we find is King Jesus, who is also, as Hebrews says, our great high priest, is going to be able to come down and make atonement for all people, once and for all, only to then transition into the Feast of Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of Booths, which is the Millennial Kingdom. What they would do is they would actually go out and they would pitch tents. They would put up these booths and they would go live out under the stars to remind themselves of God bringing them through those wilderness years until they came to the promised land. And so for a thousand years, we're going to be able to hang out with Jesus in our tabernacles. Us believers, kings and priests, there to rule and reign with him for a thousand years as Jesus is in charge. And so you see the fall completion of these during the second coming of Christ. So there, that's your Salisbury steak off the Golden Corral buffet. You can ponder on that a little bit as we get finally into Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, picking up in verse 1. And now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found a stone rolled away from the tomb. And so this group of people, in particular these ladies, which had stuck around the cross to to see the entirety of the crucifixion, uh, they were essentially the last to leave. They stuck right by Jesus' side all the way to the bloody end. They then were also the first to go and uh, attempt to apply spices to his dead body. They were there at the very end along with the Apostle John and along with a guy named Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, these two Pharisees that believed in Jesus. Now these two men are important because they had enough clout to be able to ask Pilate for the body of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea had a tomb that he actually had set aside for himself, but he gave it to Christ. What Joseph didn't know is he just needed to rent it for a few days. He thought this was a big sacrifice. So Joseph prepares a tomb along with all the rich men, which, by the way, fulfills prophecy as Jesus was killed with the sinners and the thieves, but he was buried with the wealthy. And so he's buried there in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, but they didn't have a lot of time to get his body prepared for burial completely because they were right up against the Passover feast, the the festival that started at 6 p.m. And so they had to get his body down after he was crucified at the time of the evening sacrifice around 3 o'clock in the afternoon and quickly prepare it and get him into the tomb. 
So these ladies had gathered together to go complete the embalming, the, the addition of the spices, all those things that needed to take place for the body so it could be fully prepared. Now, also a little side note, um, Passover on this particular year actually took place on Thursday. So they had Passover on Thursday. They then had Friday was their traditional Sabbath. So the reason they couldn't come back until Sunday morning is because they had two Sabbath days to observe in a row that they could do, could do no work. And so Sunday morning is the first and earliest opportunity they have to get there. And the key operative word I want to point out with these verses is early. These ladies got up early. And if you look, the word here, it actually says very early. And if you translate that in the Greek, very early means very early. Probably way before breakfast. Probably when it was still dark outside. They got up very early to go because it was so desperately important for them. By the way, when you seek Jesus, I want to encourage you to seek him early. Very early. Early in the morning. Early in your life. Any of those that have lived a life full of troubles and trials, you know it's better to seek him early than it is to let things go past. Seek him early. And I'd also encourage you to seek him early in situations. I'd hate to say how many times I get myself in the middle of a spot and I think I can work through it and I think I can deal with it and I think I can take care of it on my own and I completely forget to seek him early. Lord, I can't find my stinking car keys. <laughs> how many times now I go, well, I'm just going to pray right off the bat that it'll help me find him instead of looking for 30 minutes only to realize I left him on the hook. So seeking him early is key, and these women knew that. They also came with spices prepared for his dead body. I share that because I find that, that what we bring to Jesus says a lot about what we expect out of him. They came bringing spices for a dead body because all they expected was a dead body. And so often as we're preparing our hearts, I think we get in that spot. We, we get ourselves prepared, but we're not really prepared for a living Jesus. We get ourselves prepared to go and observe a dead body. Now what he gives them is a far different worship experience than what they're expecting. He, he opens their eyes to things completely different. In fact, they get there and the stone is rolled away. And do you realize um, the stone wasn't rolled away so that Jesus could get out? He had no problem walking through doors. Continue to look through the book of John. He walked right straight through a set of doors and into the middle of a meeting and said, hey, what's up, guys? He didn't actually say it like that, but you get the idea. The stone was rolled away so that they could get in, so that they could come in and observe exactly what he had done. And what I find is over and over again, he does this in my life. He rolls the stone away early, so that I can have an opportunity when I finally get to the point where I needed to be in the first place. And so he's got the stone there rolled away, and the ladies can observe the lack of a body. In verse 3, And then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. In verse 4, And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments, in verse 5, and then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? 
And so to begin with, these ladies, they're perplexed. I mean, it's mind-blown. Their minds are no doubt racing with all the possibilities of what might have happened, what could have happened, what might have been, who knows. And I think, how often does my mind get racing in situations? That my mind begins to come up with all kinds of possibilities of things, and I completely ignore the simple truth. And what is that very simple truth? What these men say to them is, why do you seek the living among the dead? I find it fascinating that these were not just two ordinary men, but in fact, uh, angels is what the other gospel accounts tell us. You might ask, why don't we see angels today? Anyone ever wondered that? I mean, there's angels all throughout the Bible, and yet we seem to never see them uh, ever. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, I put it up here on the screen for you, says, don't forget to show hospitality to strangers, for some of you have done this and entertained angels without realizing it. I think often we don't see angels because we don't have our eyes open. We're not looking around at what exactly he's up to. I'd hate to say how many times I've passed by an angel not willing to help when they've been right there in front of me. Now, moving on to verse 5, what we see is they ask this question, why do you seek the living among the dead? And that goes back to what I was saying earlier. So often we come into a worship setting and we show up and what we actually are expecting is Jesus in the past tense. We talk about all the great things Jesus has done, all the wonderful ways he's worked, the fact that he has risen. All those things that we say are always him in the past tense. Do you realize that he is still very active? We do not serve a dead God. We serve a living, risen Savior. But over and over again, Sunday after Sunday, we come to churches all throughout the country, and we sound just like this. It sounds like we're singing to a dead man. He arose. Christ Jesus arose. Isn't that amazing? And so often we come, and, and it's like we're expecting to see a dead man walking, but what he wants to provide to us daily is an alive Savior talking, someone we can communicate with, we can interact with on a daily basis. He's there to answer our prayers, not in the past, in the now. The past is gone. Who cares about that? He's focused on the here and now. And when you get to that point, here's the reality. It changes the way you worship. When you realize you're worshiping someone who is alive and present and with you, and by the way, what Matthew chapter 18 says is where two or three are gathered, he is there with you. He's here. He's right here with us. And so we, if we would just worship like that, if we would pray like that, like he was here and active in our life, he can do something about your situation now. Not yesterday, now. And then how we study. Oh, man. We get this book out. We've got this amazing access to the Word of God, and yet we study it and we look at it as if it's archaic and it's past tense and it's over. And yet the reality is it's alive. And the truth of the matter is, when we get ourselves into a spiritual entanglement, this is our only offensive weapon. The only thing you have offensively that you can do to fight off the enemy is the Word of God. And yet so often it ends up sitting on the nightstand, tucked in the drawer, three inches of dust on it. And no wonder 
we find ourselves in spiritual battles with no ability to defend ourselves. And so why do we seek the, the living among the dead? Verse 6, I love this response, what the angels say. He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful people and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. These angels had to actually remind them of the words of Jesus, that he would be delivered to sinful man, raised up, crucified, for all to see only on the third day to be raised again. Don't you remember what he said? And I love this because I realize angels are actually listening in on our conversations. That may freak some of you out. might seem a little creepy. But the reality is the angels were listening in on these conversations as Jesus was having it with these men. What Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, is that the angels look into our salvation and they are amazed. What does that mean? They're amazed at this salvation. Well, they look at God's grace on us. They look into us and probably go, boy, what a bunch of colossal screw-ups. <laughs> I mean, and yet, shake their head because God has so much grace upon these creatures. He loves them so much. He gives them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity because the reality is for angels, they got one shot. They got one chance. A decision had to be made that day. Follow Satan. A third of them did. Stay here and worship the true and living God. Two-thirds of them did. They have no more potential beyond that point. They'll be no more angelic or no, more, no less angelic than what they were on that day. And yet they look at us in amazement because what Jesus sees, potential, vast potential, that if they can just get it, they'll just come back to me, which is why he's so willing to give us grace time and time again in situations over and over and over again. And the reality is, for you coming in here today, this is just the truth. I am not what I will be, but I'm sure not what I once was. <laughs> like we are works in progress, but there is potential in us. And the angels even look at this and go, man, we can't believe it. But the thing is, it causes them to then turn, not and be bitter, but turn and worship. Turn and worship and go, God, you are so good. Praise you. Continuing on in verse 9. And then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven. That's because Judas has already passed off the scene, so there's only eleven apostles left. And to all the rest. And it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other Mary with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. And so what we have is now the women have come back to the apostles and the other disciples that had followed Jesus. Jesus had himself a, a pretty good-sized following at this point. If we look at the upper room, at least 120 were following him at that point. And so he's got these people that have been following after him, and the women, led by Mary Magdalene, they come back and they're so excited because he's risen. Our Savior's alive. And if you think about this, the first person that he comes to, it's not Peter, it's not James, it's not John, it's Mary Magdalene, a former 
prostitute who had been inhabited by seven demons. I mean, this lady was messed up, y'all. She had problems. This is the first person Jesus comes back to. And when I think about all the times we, we criticize, we beat ourselves up, and we go, well, surely God can't do that. He, he surely can't fix this in me. There's no way he's going to ever appear to me. I'm not good enough. I don't stack up. I mean, look at my past. What Mary Magdalene knew that we need to get our heads wrapped around is precisely what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. This one is highlighter worthy. If you don't panic about highlighting stuff in your Bible, I suggest you do it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You see, as Jesus interacted with Mary Magdalene, she wasn't a lady that was a prostitute or had seven demons. She was a new creation. Birthed in Jesus Christ. Completely new. Made whole from the inside out. Made right again with God. And so, this is precisely why Jesus loved her so much and came to her. And, and they go to the 11 and they're excited with the news. Praise the Lord, He's risen. And how do they react? Unbelief. They do not listen. And what I wanted to share with you is, is unbelief always causes us to remain in despair longer. That's the fruit of unbelief. That we have to be stuck in despair for longer than what God had deemed necessary. And so often, what God really wants to do is He wants to take the people around us, those closest to us, and let them speak into our lives to give us direction and encouragement and sometimes a gentle rebuke and sometimes not such a gentle rebuke. He wants to use those people around us to do just that for us. And I joke around, and you probably heard me call Angela the blonde Holy Spirit because that's precisely what she is in my life. But here's the truth. Time and time and time again, she tells me things that are hard that nobody else is going to tell me and they hit home way harder than if anybody else said them. And they hurt. They sting. But almost all the time, she is spot on. <laughs> Precisely what God wants to communicate about things I need to work on in my life, if I just be a grown-up, mature. The boys think that's a Christian cuss word. Mature is the word. Mature in my faith. And go, you know what? You're right. That's something I need to work on. I need to be redirected in that area. Thank you for that, even though it stung a little bit. But here's the thing. Lack of belief for these men left them in the darkness longer than what they needed to be. They could have been immediately enlightened, just as excited as the women, and yet they were stuck in a dark place for longer than they needed to be because they did not believe. Now here's the beautiful thing. Jesus is life. He is the light of the world, and the light cannot be extinguished by the darkness. So the, the darkness is going to be pushed out. If you just let a little bit of light shine in your life, it's going to be pushed out. But the more and the faster you can believe it, the faster you can be out of that dark place. Now then, in the final verse for this morning, verse 12, but Peter arose and ran to the tomb 
Stooping down, he saw the linen clothes lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling at himself at what had happened. Three things I wanted to take away from this final verse. You might wonder how I could get three things out of one verse. That's because I'm a preacher. So just give me a minute. Three things. First of all, at the beginning of the verse, Peter arose and he ran to the tomb. In John's account, in John chapter 20, he actually says both John and Peter ran to the tomb together. Now what I love about John's account is that John made sure to point out that he actually outran Peter in a foot race. <laughs> I love that. That even in the middle of the gospel, Peter, or John wants to make sure that we know that he's faster than Peter is. Which tells you right there that even as Christian brothers and sisters, um, if I play a game with you, I will be gracious and I will be so holy, um, but I will do everything I can to beat your pants off. Because I like to win. And I, I'm probably not going to brag about it. I might brag about it a little bit. But not too much. But, but that's the reality. Here's even these guys, they're competitive. They're racing to the tomb. John outraces Peter, but he gets there. And, and, and the serious part that I want to point out is that John was there for Peter as he found his way back to Jesus. Do you have a friend like that? Do you have a friend that even when you're in your lowest moment, in your toughest spot, that will be right there beside you as you make your way back to Christ? I hope that you do. That's part of the reason we gather in groups like this is so that we can come together and you can have a group of believers around you that will help you in the toughest place Find your way back to Jesus. Because for old Pete, he was in a bad spot. I mean, just a few days earlier, he had denied his Lord and Savior three different times. Asked point blank, do you know this man? Do not know him. Even to the point he was cussing about it. He was so adamant that he didn't know Jesus. I don't know Jesus. I don't know him. And so he's heartbroken, beat up about the spot that he's in. Yet here's John right alongside him on a foot race to find the Lord. Now they get there, and the second point is Peter arrives, he stoops down, and he sees the linen clothes lying by themselves. What's he see when he sticks his head in the tomb? But he sees grave clothes, the clothes of a dead man lying there off to the side. Now in John chapter 11, we see this uh, interesting story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus was a friend of the Lord, uh, also a brother to Mary and Martha. And he got word days before that Lazarus was sick. And so what did Jesus do? Did he grab his paramedic bag and run to Lazarus? No, he actually, he took two extra days. <laughs> he took his sweet time until finally word came uh, that Lazarus was dead, passed away. Now he continued his journey back to Bethany, uh, back to where Lazarus was buried, back to greet Mary and Martha who were so distraught that he didn't make it in time to see their brother. And so in John chapter 11, verse 25, this is the interaction that he has uh, with Mary and Martha. He's speaking in this place to Martha in verse 25. He said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And Martha replied to him in verse 27, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. She expresses her 
belief in him that he can in fact do this. And so he commands the stone to then be rolled away where her brother was buried. And in verse 41, skipping down to that spot, and then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was laying and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you and that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me, but because of these people who are standing here, are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. I always loved that verse because I heard it taught. You know why he, he was specific about Lazarus, right? Because if he would have just said come forth, all the dead people would have come out. So that would be specific. Lazarus, come forth. In verse 44, and he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth, and Jesus said to them, let him loose, let him go. Lazarus, miraculously raised from the dead, except as he came out, what is he still clothed in? Grave clothes. But those clothes didn't belong to Lazarus anymore because he wasn't dead. He was alive. And so Jesus' command is, get those dead man's clothes off of him. He's alive. Get the clothes off. And so when we go back to Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul speaks very specifically about what the clothes of a dead man look like. And in verse 8, he says, But now you yourselves are to put off all these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man and his deeds. Those are the clothes of a dead man. Paul goes on into verse 12 and he says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on the tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Our call as believers is to put off the grave clothes, to stop walking around wrapped up in these things that, that have us bound. Jesus' command, as you come to know him, as you lay it all down there before him, is come out and get those grave clothes off. And yet time and time again, what do we do? We want to go start wrapping ourselves back up. We get all entangled, and his, and his cry to us is, look, put on these new clothes, and the way it's most identified is it's put on the bond of love. Love. Now then, the final thing to note from what Peter had to say, and here in verse 12, it says, and then he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. So as Peter walks away from the grave that day, he's yet to see Jesus in person. And yet, he marveled at the resurrection. That's the question to leave with here today. When's the last time you marveled? I mean, really marveled at the resurrection. When you thought back about all the things he's brought you through, all the trials and the tribulations and the slip-ups and the screw-ups and all the ways that you failed and yet he did not. When you really, truly think about how 
this has all transpired through your life. It's marvelous, isn't it? Like, this is a reason for joy. This is a reason for celebration. And here's the thing. It did not just stop there. In John chapter 20, verse 22, as Jesus has now been resurrected, and he's addressing these disciples who have gathered together, here's what he said. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. For the first time, they actually had the opportunity to receive the Holy Spirit within themselves. If his crucifixion was payment for our sins, and his resurrection is the receipt that the payment is accepted, then him giving us his Holy Spirit is the earnest deposit on your soul. It's the guarantee that he is going to come back and get you, and you have got a spot in eternity secured with him. So as you leave out of here, and you want to marvel at something, marvel at that. That Jesus Christ actually gives each of us an opportunity for him to live within us. And then it's a guarantee at our spot in heaven for all of eternity. You can walk around high. There is literally nothing this world can do. Hold your head up high and know that, that he's going to come back to get you. Why? How do you know that? Because he lives inside you. He's not going to leave himself down here. So he's going to come back to take you away with him someday. There's nothing this world can throw at you to defeat you. It's a beautiful thing. And so then as God looks upon you and I, at that time of judgment when the whole world is terrified about the judgment of God, here's precisely what he's going to say. You look marvelous. No Saturday Night Live fans or Billy Crystal fans. He's going to look at you and say, you look marvelous because you're covered in the perfect blood of the Lamb. Atoned for for all of eternity. So if you want something to marvel about this Sunday, marvel at that. Father, we thank you and we praise you. Boy, just like the angels, as we look into this thing called salvation, it is mind-boggling. And frankly, Lord, um, so often what comes back to us are feelings of guilt and shame and pain and regret and all this stuff. Boy, all the clothes of a dead man. All the debts that we want to bring back up. And Father, thank you so much for wiping those out once and for all, for paying those completely and totally in full. And then, Lord, thank you for not just leaving us here, but thank you for the down payment, for the earnest deposit of the Holy Spirit that we get to have you residing in us, that all these things that we cannot accomplish, we can't do them on our own. I, I don't have any ability to hardly put one foot in front of the other most days. And yet because of you living in me, because of you living in these uh, folks gathered here today, we can put one foot in front of the other, head held high, knowing that you're going to come back for us. You're not going to leave us or forsake us. We praise you for that, Lord. Thank you for what you're up to as we continue to reflect upon your goodness and the marvelous nature.